This is the Flatlining Podcast. A good life for American families also requires the most affordable, innovative, and high-quality health care system on Earth. Before I took office, health insurance premiums had more than doubled in just five years. I moved quickly to provide affordable alternatives. Our new plans are up to 60% less expensive and better. What is Medicare for all? It guarantees, like every other major country on Earth, health care to every man, woman, and child in this country. This sounds expensive. What's expensive and what's unsustainable is the current health care system. And what if I have a private or employer-based insurance program right now and I like it? Well, you may be one of the millions of people who leaves your job this year and you're going to leave your private insurance. You may be one of the many millions of people who finds that their employer has gone out and got another uh, insurance company to cover you. You're going to have to change that. But essentially, under Medicare for all, all people will be covered by Medicare. And what happens to those insurance companies after your plan is implemented? Under Medicare for all, we cover all basic health care needs. So they're not going to be there to do that. I suppose if you want to make yourself look a little bit more beautiful, you want to work on that nose, your ears, uh, they can do that. So basically, Blue Cross Blue Shield will be reduced to nose jobs. Something like that. The bigger problem that you have is that you're going to extinguish 180 million people with their private health care, that they're very That's happy That's simply with. not true. Well, you're that certainly going that. to but socialist. You're going to this, socialist this, this is, we're, we're now into, gentlemen, we're now into open discussion. Open discussion. Open discussion. Yes, I agree. Go ahead, Vice President. Number one, uh, he, he knows that uh, what I proposed. What I proposed is that uh, we expand Obamacare and we increase it. We do not wipe any. And one of the big debates we had with 23 of my colleagues trying to win the nomination that I won, we're saying that Biden wanted to allow people to have private insurance still. They can. They do. They will under my proposal. It's not what you've said, but and it's not what your party is, has said. That is simply Your party a lie. doesn't say it. Your party that wants to go socialist medicine. My party is and me. socialist Right now, I am and the Democratic Party. And they're going to dominate party. you, Joe. You know that. I am the Democratic Party right now. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast, a podcast that brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. I'm Matthew Hamley from Flatlining.net, and with me, as he has been the past couple of times, is the president and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies, Ron Howergan. Ron, how's it going? It's going well, Matthew. I hope it is for you as well. It is going well, too. A little chilly. Hopefully, spring will finally come out here in the next uh, next couple of weeks, but we'll see. As you may have heard in the beginning of the program today, we're going to be talking a little bit more about healthcare politics and policy today on the Flatlining Podcast. We had something we've dived into a little bit into on flatlining.net, so I encourage you to go check that out uh, when you have a chance. Um, but Ron, I guess you might, I would, I would consider you one of the foremost experts in this based off of your book, um, Flatlining, which is where we grabbed the name from for, for this new setup for the podcast and for the website. So I guess in the subtitle for that book is how healthcare is killing the U.S. economy. And I guess what what is killing the U.S. economy uh, in the healthcare field? Um, well, that, you know, what's killing in the healthcare field is, is sort of an incredibly complex question. And it's not one thing. Um, it's a multitude of factors that are driving up the cost of healthcare. There's no magic bullet. There's no one thing. And a lot of things that people think it is really aren't. Um, you know, I've heard people say, well, you know, doctors make too much money and mm -hmm. that's why, you know, why healthcare is so expensive. Well, if you add up all the physicians in the country, there are about a million of them and their income, what doctors take home in income is about 5% of the total U.S. healthcare cost. So it's clearly not them. Right. I mean, they're, yep. they're a small portion. So it's an incredibly complex issue on why healthcare is inflating so fastly as it is and why it's chewing up too much of the U.S. economy. So if doctors are only 5%, where does the other 95% come from? Well, the big chunks are, if you look at it, are roughly, there's a, we call a third, a third, a third. About a third of it is drug cost. Okay. You know, and that's everything from oral medications to high cost injectables infusions. About a third of it are things that happen in a hospital, 
That's everything from transplants to outpatient surgeries, imaging, et cetera. And then about a third of it is sort of all other. But one of the things you got to understand when I, you talk about like physicians mm-hmm. and the cost of physicians, what I just quoted was what physicians take home, not how much money gets spent for medical office care or things like that, right. because there's an enormous amount of cost to provide that care that really doesn't find its way into the doctor's pocket. So about a third of it is physicians and everything happens in that environment. About a third happens in a hospital and about a third is drug cost. And that, and I would assume, at least for the hospital and for the physicians, like you're saying, a lot of that's administrative. It's going towards paying for the nurses, the people that actually have to do the billing and stuff like that. Yeah, it's overhead and administrative cost, and you know, and and all of that other stuff to provide that kind of care and to have care readily available. Um, you know, that's one mm-hmm. of the things that people don't understand. Part of what we pay for is an incredible level of access to care. If your doctor, you know, thinks there's something wrong, you don't wait two months for an MRI. You don't wait even very long to have standard outpatient surgery. You know, we have emergency rooms that are ready, waiting, and staffed with capacity. Those all, those things all cost money. Yeah, and that's something that I was interested in and picking your brain on a little bit. And it's something we've talked about before offline, and a lot of people have other also acknowledged in other places. And that's that emergency room care is the most the most expensive place to get healthcare. And I don't think a lot of under- Americans really understand why that is. So at least in the US, why, why is ER care so much more expensive than say an urgent care or going to see your primary care physician? Well, think about it like this. Um, imagine if you will, we treated, and I'll take just a standard thing. We treated automobiles the same way we treat people. And I'm not saying we should, I'm just, it's mm-hmm. a, it's a, analogy that we'll be able to understand. Right. So let's say at the very first hint that your engine might have a problem, you could pull in somewhere and there was a fully staffed out NASCAR pit crew with mechanics and, you know, and man, they jumped on that and started diagnosing the car and they jacked it up and, and, you know, and, and could figure out what's going on right then. Okay. Having that available, that kind of skill level, that kind of access, just sort of waiting for you to drive in is expensive. Well, and in essence, we have that with ER care, mm-hmm. you know, and I, you know, I've used it personally. I had a, a situation where I was concerning that I was having a heart attack. Okay. You get rolled in, they start testing you almost immediately. There are physicians there that are very good at what they do. We've got the most advanced technology available. They're running lab tests, you know, EKGs, et cetera. They could do a cardiac CT all of this stuff is there to try to save your life, which is great, but it also comes with a price tag. And that's what we have in this country that really more so than any other country, that much access to truly world-class medicine with the most advanced technology available. And that's not to say that an urgent care has inferior technology or it's inferior in any way. It's just a different place to get it where it's, it's, things are prioritized differently. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, one of the problems is as a society, we have this in other things other than healthcare, you know, sometimes we want a lot more than we need. And so if the emergency rooms were only used for what are truly life-threatening emergencies, that'd be one thing. But the problem is they get clogged up with a lot of other things because we're mm-hmm. used to, well, gosh, I've got, I'm having a migraine today and that's terrible. And my doctor can't get in me. I'm just going to go to the ER and they'll take care of me. Right. And they will but it's a very expensive way to take care of you. Yeah. You're paying for the, the instant. It's almost like paying extra for Amazon prime to get your two hour delivery as opposed to waiting two days. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's instant with, gratification in that. Regard. Right. But with one very important difference and this, I'm glad you brought that up because this is really critical. If I want to pay for Amazon prime for instant gratification, or I want to pay the extra money to have somebody drive me my fast food, then me go and get it. Mm-hmm. That's okay. Because as the consumer, I'm making that choice and I'm paying the cost. Right. But when it comes to healthcare, somebody else is paying the cost because at the macro sense, the actual patient only pays on average about 10% of the bill. So it'd be like saying, well, my employer or the government is going to pay for Amazon Prime, so I want it all the time. Right. Um, that's the big difference is we've disconnected the consumer from the purchaser. And that's part of why these purchasing decisions aren't really rational decisions. I can make a rational decision on how much Amazon Prime is worth to me, and you might make a different decision. Mm -hmm. But if you remove the cost from both of us, we both make the same decision. Well, not only do I want it, I want it all the time. Right. 
you know, and this is this brings up sort of what we some of the clips we played here at the beginning of the program. And, and one of them was an interview that Senator Bernie Sanders did in 2020 when he was running for uh, the Democratic nomination uh, with uh, he did that interview with CBS News. And he pointed out that he was asked, you know, Medicare for all his proposal sounds very expensive. And his response was, well, the current system we have is expensive and it's not sustainable. So I guess in what ways is he right that the current system we have is not sustainable long term? So he's he's right at all. Yeah, he's absolutely right that the current system is not sustainable. Um, And it's very easy to take a look at it. If you look at how much U.S. healthcare consumes of our global economy, our total economy, Mm because, you know, there's only the pie is only so big. So if you go back to about 1960, healthcare was about 5% of the U.S. economy. Well, today it's close to 20%. Well, you can draw a trend line and go, well, it can't keep going up because eventually it reaches 100%. Right. And it actually breaks well before that. But um, because every dollar we spend on healthcare is a dollar we don't spend on something else. So he's right. That's unsustainable. Now, saying that that means that anything else is better or that Medicare for all would be better. That's where the, the lapse in logic comes. Um, and it's a, you know, whenever I'm talking to somebody this, I use this, this, there's an old movie scene and I love it because it, to me, it, it, it answers this question perfectly when you talk about, you know, well, this is unsustainable. So something else must be better, especially Medicare for all. And it's from the old movie with um, Robert Redford and Paul Newman, Butch and Sundance. Mm-hmm. And in the movie, they're, you know, they're being chased by this huge posse and going after them. And they end up getting sort of cornered on this cliff and they're back, their backs of this cliff and it drops way down and there's a river, you know, hundreds of feet below. And they're deciding what to do. And, and one of them says, hey, we got to jump. And the other one says, no, no, let's, let's shoot it out. Let's shoot it out. And he goes, man, we can't shoot it out. There's too many of them. We got to jump. And he goes, no, no, no. And they argue. Finally, he goes, why don't you want to jump? And he said, because I can't swim. And then looks at him and says, you can't swim. Hell, the fall is going to kill us. Right. And my point to that is, whether it's financed by the government in Medicare for all, or it's financed by a combination of the government and employers as our current system, that's not the issue. That's like deciding whether I can swim or not. The fall that's going to kill us is overall, we're just spending way too much money. Who's paying the bill is not what's causing it. Mm-hmm. And so that's when, it, when Bernie's like, whenever anybody says, well, Medicare for all will fix it. No, it won't. The underlying problems that we have are still there. It's just a different different uh, body picking up the tab, so to speak. And over the next couple of weeks, I hope we look at a little bit and maybe do a little bit of comparative politics of, of how other nations run their healthcare system, because Sanders seemed to think that his proposal is very similar to Canada's system. There's also you've got the NHS in England and you've got other programs elsewhere in the world. Um, and I think it's important for us to compare and contrast some of the advantages and disadvantages between those systems and what we do have in, have in the United States, even if what we have is not necessarily the best system. We, absolutely. And, and, but when we're doing that comparison, we also need to understand that it is a, it's worse than an apples to oranges comparison to compare Canada to the U.S. Right. Because the overall health of the populations is dramatically different, you know? So it's a little bit like, you know, I'm a, you know, 50 something year old overweight guy lining me up against a 25 year old track star and having us run a hundred yard dash. Well, I know who's going to win. Right. Yeah. It doesn't have anything to do with what shoes we got on, you know? So um, even that comparison across countries, because we're such a very different society and have very different health issues, mostly self-imposed, you really can't compare, and um, but you can compare their systems and what they get in services and wait times and cost a little bit, you know, by the nature of the system. Mm-hmm. So there seems to be a couple of different issues when, when people like Senator Sanders say that it's not sustainable. And on the one hand, I, he's talking economics that financially the current system we have is not sustainable. But he also talks about um, the availability of healthcare and how many people are insured or underinsured. And is available healthcare availability? I mean, how much of that is actually a problem in the U.S. where something like Medicare for all might help? Well, and, and first of all, you've got to sort of understand what the term availability means to you and what way you're referencing it. So now, what I mean by that is, 
So availability to some people is who has insurance, right? Okay. Availability to other people is, well, can I personally call a doctor and get in tomorrow? Or can I go into the ER and not have to wait 20 hours? Or can I have my MRI within a few days? Um, and another form of availability is, well, when I get my cancer, are all the various drugs available to me or are only the ones that are less expensive available to, available mm-hmm. to me? So there's, there's a multifaceted part of availability. Now, when Bernie talks about it and the Medicare for All proponents, they talk about availability, meaning people having access to basically health insurance or to pay for their health care. Right. And, and that he, he's right. I mean, we do have millions of people in this country still without access to insurance. Um, somebody else, you know, a, a conservative Republican might mean availability means access to the highest quality care, mm-hmm. the best drug for your condition, doctors that are available to see you right away. So you don't have to wait too long to get your, you know, you get your heart checked out, et cetera. They're both right. They're just looking at it from a different perspective. And it's interesting, we've had a number of issues, not issues, but rather policies and proposals and even laws come into effect that have attempted to fix this issue. And one of them was the Affordable Care Act of uh, 2010, I believe. Yeah, 2010, yeah. which we've just which just turned 12 years old mm-hmm. this past week. Um, and it comes at a time as well when the leading three credit bureaus in the U.S. are also not going to look at medical debt when determining a credit score for someone, which is also kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Could, could you talk a little bit about how, what the Affordable Care Act intended to do and whether or not it met that goal? Well, yeah, I think when it first came out, um, the Affordable Care Act, or when it was first being discussed before it got passed, was intended to be a way to cover the gap of, at the time, roughly 40 million Americans without insurance, mm-hmm. um, to create a government-funded, um, a government-ran insurance company that was the public option, and then to do a fair amount of reforms to how insurance would take place, how it could be priced, et cetera. Um, and it got most of the way there on what it wanted to do. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of talk about how it was going to make things cheaper, but that was talk. There, there really wasn't anything in the Affordable Care Act that would lower the cost of healthcare. It was about you know, covering more people, um, trying to get uh, the, the public option and doing some insurance reforms, things like getting rid of lifetime maximums and the way mm-hmm. they got rated. So at the end of it, when the sausage was made and it finally got passed, um, they covered more people, not all of them. You know, there was still a gap there, um, but they did increase, uh, you know, millions of people got coverage through the Affordable Care Act that wouldn't have gotten it otherwise. So, you know, they, for the most part, met that goal. They didn't get the public option. Um, that was a, a bridge too far a bit. And they did a pretty decent job of providing some um, changes to the way health insurance happened, like, you know, no lifetime maximums and the way right. things get rated, that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, if, if I were going to give a letter grade to what they were trying to do yeah, with what they were trying to do, B, you know, mm-hmm. a, a good solid B um, for what their attempt was. It added some expense. It, it was not without... Um, expense. So healthcare did get more expensive. And I think when you really look at it, it was, they never designed it, nor did they think it was really going to lower the cost of healthcare. That was just to help get it sold. Right. And it's not like the public option as a policy proposal has completely gone away. Biden ran on that and was actually in the minority among the Democratic candidates running for president in 2020, who all seemed to want Medicare, some sort of form of Medicare for all, where he he ran on expanding the Affordable Care Act to include a public option. Yeah. And, and, and of course, obviously, he was invested in it. He was right. the vice president yep. when it got passed. And, and, you know, Biden, by nature, is more of a you know, a centrist within the Democrat party than some of the other ones. And, and, you know, he gets, uh, some of them complain that he's not, you know, liberal enough. And this idea of, you know, the public option and some of the other things he ran on is more of a center left policy than Medicare for all, which is pretty, pretty far left. So that all makes sense. Um, And it's not dead yet. I mean, who knows if it'll ever happen, but it keeps getting surfaced. Right. And the Affordable Care Act hasn't been without certain or at least attempts to reform it. Um, Of course, there's this famous repeal and replace policy, which we haven't heard, I don't think, in many years, especially since the late John McCain shot that down in the Senate. 
Um, but the, during the Trump administration, they did introduce some cheaper short-term plans, which according to the Commonwealth Fund, um, have helped some young, healthy people get off ACA plans. Um, but that those might go away in the future. Do you, do you know much about those or, or how they could affect healthcare in the U.S., whether or not they're good, bad, um, or not important? Yeah, so um, in and of themselves, they're not good or bad. It's like anything else, um, as long as you understand what they are. Okay. Mm -hmm. Insurance is really a fairly simple concept, you know, and in health insurance, we've got a fairly good understanding of what things are going to cost. You know, insurance is all about actuaries saying, here's what the projected cost for this is going to be. Now, how much do you want the consumer to pay for it? How much do you want somebody else to pay for it? Um, you know, it's sort of like the, the, the car insurance ads that say, well, you know, tell us what you want your premium to be and we'll design a policy for you. Right. That's because all I got to do is say, well, if that's all you want to pay, then your deductible is $4,000, mm-hmm. you know, and it only covers this. Those cheaper plans that allowed some people to get off the ACA are, are fine, but they also don't cover a whole lot. You know, and for a young, healthy person, you might say, well, I don't care. I'm not likely to get sick. And for most of the people, you probably aren't. And if you're the 25-year-old that gets that rare cancer, well, you're probably going to have problems. You know, that's right. probably not going to cover a lot of that. So again, it's, it's the, there's no magic to what the cost of the policy is. It's all a function of how much do you want to pay and how much do you want us to pay? Right. Exactly. <clears throat> So how, you know, we hear a little bit, of, Biden talks about expanding the ACA. And as I mentioned earlier, we don't hear at all about really, you know, repeal and replace anymore. So, but we also had the um, the individual mandate thrown out a couple of years ago in court. So where does the Affordable Care Act stand now um, with regards to how healthcare might be killing the U.S. economy? Well, a couple of things. First of all, um, we don't have a very good track record in the government of ever putting in programs and getting rid of them. So that's what I always thought was funny when people talked about repeal and replace. Right. I mean, literally the Tennessee Valley Authority is still operating and that was made to, you know, electrify the, you know, some of the rural areas. I'm pretty sure we have electricity everywhere now mm-hmm. um, and it's still there. So, you know, I don't think, you know, getting rid of the ACA was sort of a dream and I don't think it's going to happen. It's been in place too long. Um, but the other thing to understand is if our problem, our big problem with healthcare is cost and the ACA didn't do anything to lower cost, then it didn't help with the problem. You know, we're, we're still running into an area where we're going to have to figure out how to do this differently. Otherwise the system itself is going to collapse. So when people say, well, you know, the ACA did this or the ACA, it provided some coverage and for the people who got it, Hallelujah. I'm sure for many of them, it was a, a lifesaver, but it didn't address the underlying problem. Um, it'd be a little bit like, you know, rolling, get, be rolled into an ER with a sucking chest wound from a gun and somebody going, you know, this knee looks a little squirrely. I'm going to do orthopedic surgery on it. Like, right. wait a minute, that's not what's killing me, doc. You <laughs> right. know, I mean, yeah. yeah, it hurts, but we can deal with that later. You know, why don't you deal with the big sucking chest wound? That's what I'm worried about. And, mm-hmm. and the AC didn't do anything about that. And the, the data shows that if you look at cost lines, you know, pre and post ACA, um, it didn't bend that cost curve at all. It wasn't designed to. Right. So when we talk about how healthcare is killing the U.S. economy, are we talking about how the government and how businesses are spending on healthcare and how that affects things? Or are we talking about what individual people pay? Um, it's, it's all of the above. Um, you know, if you look at any state budget, Healthcare is an enormous chunk of their budget, mm-hmm. you know, as just providing healthcare to state employees in most states, you know, the state government is their largest or second largest employer providing benefits to state employees is killing the killing state budgets. You look at the federal budget, it's enormous. It's a huge part of the federal budget. It's inflating every year. It's killing federal budgets. So what the government spends is truly becoming a problem. Employers. Um, you know, healthcare costs and what that happens, especially trying to compete in a world marketplace. Um, it was, uh, oh, uh, Sam Walton um, called uh, healthcare the tapeworm of the U.S. economy um, and said it's what's causing economic growth to be stifled in this country. And then individuals, 
you know, um, a lot of people just get under crushing debt because of healthcare costs, even with insurance. If you look at the Affordable Care Act, the bronze plans, the most affordable plan, by definition, by law, the actuarial science behind it is it's only supposed to pay for about 60% of all the cost and the 40% goes to the consumer. And, you know, and that 40% can be crushing to people. So right. yeah, there are people out there that can't pay their mortgage or can't pay rent or can't buy food because they're paying for healthcare. So it's all the above. And I think, especially as we came through COVID, there's, there's been a number of things that have come forward to help ease some of those costs, at least during the pandemic. Um, one of them being um, free COVID-19 testing mm-hmm. pretty much anywhere you want. Well, the money dried up for that last week and at least Walgreens and CVS have announced that it's going to cost $130 if you're un- uninsured to get a PCR test. Mm-hmm. And I have no doubt that that'll harm some people, especially as the, the states shut down their own COVID testing sites. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, you know, it's that old, there's no free lunch. Somebody mm-hmm. has to pay for this. And, you know, when the government paid for it, it's just a hidden tax. We'll have to pay for it somewhere else and that's right. fine. And it was the right thing to do during the pandemic. And now who's, you know, who's going to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Another one of those things that came out during the Trump administration that we've dealt a lot with at Fulcrum Strategies is the No Surprises Act. And that, as it came out and as we've discussed, does help consumers not get, you know, thrown, you know, surprise bills, no surprises. Mm-hmm. How much will that help with the problem of healthcare killing the economy? Um, if any, just a little bit, because okay. what it attacked was really a small part of the whole total. Um, it's, you know, it's window dressing, if you will. Now, for the individuals that get protected from those bills, you know, at the micro level, yeah, it can be a game changer. And it's not necess- it's not a bad law per se. And actually, it's, you know, now that it's been clarified a bit, it's actually fairly good. Mm-hmm. Um, but will it bend the cost curve? No, no. There's you're talking about a four trillion dollar marketplace economy. You know, again, this is not even a rounding error of right. what it will take. There are much bigger, more systemic things that have to happen to bend that cost curve. So, in that case, then with it helping doctors, then of course it's it's not going to harm. The, I mean, I guess it could harm the insurance companies in some way, but that's also not going to make any dent in the the healthcare economy problem. No, it's just, it's too small of a portion. You know, when you think about these bills and how small of the $4 trillion it is that gets wrapped up in this, even if it cut those costs in half, which it won't, that's still a rounding error on the $4 trillion. Mm-hmm. Like I said, that's, that's the problem is you're, you know, you got to deal with much bigger things. It's a little bit like, you know, when, you know, somebody at the federal government level says, you know, hey, I, you know, I trimmed $10 billion out of our federal government. You think, wow, $10 billion is a lot of money. Well, not for the whole federal budget. It is right. it's a rounding error, you know, right. um, same thing with healthcare. So let's take a step back then when we're talking about the healthcare economy problem, when did healthcare start to become a problem in the United States? Um, economically speaking. Well, there, there's sort of two, there's two things you need to think about here. One of them is, um, Understand that, in my opinion, the healthcare, our healthcare delivery system did exactly what we asked it to do. We're just unhappy with the results now. And the the analogy I use is, imagine if you and your friends were going out to dinner and it was on a company credit card. So you're not going to have to pay this. And your company says, hey, you pick up the tip, okay? You pick up the, you know, 10% tip's fine. You pick up the tip. Mm-hmm. And you're eating out of, you're going to go to this wonderfully nice restaurant. You know, all I got to do is pay the tip. It's great. And so you order the appetizers and the ship, the, the seafood sampler, and you, you know, you're all getting the, the best cut of beef that they have. And, you know, we'll uh, only a really nice French Bordeaux will go with this and we'll need multiple bottles of that and the baked right, Alaska right. afterwards. And, and then when the waiter brings the bill, your employer gets angry. Okay. That's what we did with healthcare. We told it, we want the very best of everything. We want it readily available. We want it available everywhere so people don't have to drive. And we want to make sure that every time technology advances, we're right there, man. We want it. And we want, so we, we did all the, and it did just that. We created 
the highest quality healthcare delivery system in the world by far. And then we got the bill and the people paying for it, the government and employers said, whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't like this. That's not what I wanted. Mm-hmm. So that's what's happened. It, didn't, it did what we told it to. We just don't like the results. Now, when did it happen? It happened over time. So from the 60s to about the 80s, it really didn't ex- expand or inflate that far. And then it started to take this upward spiral as technology, as advances in medicine started producing things that were better and then much more expensive. And to be honest with you, if you look at sort of the economic boom of the 80s and everything, as at the same time, because of our wealth in this country, our society got more and more unhealthy. So at the same time that we needed more and more healthcare because we got very unhealthy was the same time that the healthcare system was advancing in technology and delivery capability. And those two things caused this rapid spike in cost really over the last three or four decades. So setting aside the Affordable Care Act, what other programs have been introduced to try and fix some of the healthcare cost problems that we have? Um, None that were incredibly successful. We've tried a few things. So early on was the big push to um, HMOs. Mm -hmm. And that's when managed care was developed. And the, the concept was, well, if we just had somebody injecting themselves in the delivery process to make sure unnecessary things don't happen. And you got to get a referral before you go to a specialist. And the specialist has to get a prior authorization before they do this. And, and all, you know, all this managed care. And really, it didn't bend the curve. What we realized was the consumer's appetite to consume and intelligent people on the delivery system side were smart enough to get around any of those barriers. Um, it's a little bit like you know, tax law. As soon as you put a law in, some you know crafty tax attorney is going to figure out a loophole right. um, and work his way around it. So managed care was an attempt. For a while, Medicare had some attempts to try to control expenses um, by tying physician reimbursement to whatever cost increases were. Only our federal government never had enough guts to actually make that happen because it would have cut reimbursement for physicians so bad and you know, cutting Medicare is a great way to become the ex-senator of whatever state you're from. Right. So, yeah. you know, there really haven't been very many successful attempts, some of them from a private industry perspective, some of them governmental perspective, but none of them have really worked. Yeah, it's interesting you say that just because it seems like uh, healthcare, it's almost kind of like the military industrial complex where every district in the country has some sort of military apparatus there. Whereas healthcare is the same way. Every district in the country has a Medicare patient somewhere that's going to have to vote for you. And a hospital and, and a hospital. doctors. Yep. And, you know, so yeah, it's, it's actually, it's a good analogy. It's actually much more pervasive than the military, you know, um, system because there isn't a representative in the house of representatives that doesn't have at least a hospital and several physicians and patients in their district. Right. And it's a very emotional thing. You know, you don't, you don't put your rural hospital out of business and survive that in an election. No, you know, that doesn't happen. You mentioned Medicare um, trying to curb physician reimbursement. And right now there's a push by President Biden and others in Congress to have Medicare uh, negotiate drug pricing. Um, how much would that make a dent in the healthcare cost problem if that were to happen? Well, first of all, I think we need to attack drug pricing, but I think negotiating the price, thinking you're going to do it through negotiating the price is, in my mind, a fallacy. Um, First of all, um, think about this. Let's say that, you know, the next great cancer drug comes out Mm -hmm. and man, this one is life changing, as many of them have been. And Medicare says, hey, we're only going to pay hundred thousand dollars for that. What happens when the manufacturer says, you know, I, I think it's really worth 200,000. And so go ahead and not buy it and watch how fast senators and, and representatives run for cover when that drug company that has enormous amounts of public relations money sends ads to say, you know, we'd love to help save grandma's life, but unfortunately the government won't pay the cost for this drug. You know, so first of all, I don't think they have the negotiating leverage that they think they do. Um, secondly, you push on that balloon, it's just going to go out somewhere else, either by having the cost of that drug get inflated to the employers, 
Or if you push on it successfully too far down, those drugs don't get developed anymore. The reason we've had these incredible advances in drugs and pharmaceuticals to treat diseases is because they are very profitable when you have those advances. And it's willing to take all the money it takes to try to find that eureka moment because you know there's a huge payoff. If the payoff isn't there, nobody's going to do it. So they one argument when they have talked about doing this now with Medicare is that they do this with Veterans Affairs. And I, I'm guessing Veterans Affairs then is not large enough that it makes that much of a difference one way or the other that saying VA can negotiate drug prices. Well, yeah. So first of all, the VA is a very small part of the healthcare delivery system. Right. And so sure, the, the drug companies can you know negotiate lower rates with the VA system, but those costs get pushed off somewhere else, namely Medicare and employer groups. Um, but one of the things, whenever anybody uses the VA as an example, and I mean, the VA, there's wonderful people there doing amazing work. I don't, mm-hmm. it's not a pre but I don't see a whole lot of people clamoring to get into the VA system as their delivery system of choice. Right. You know, you don't see this big output. I know I've got Blue Cross, but please let me get into the VA. Right. Um, you know, or that's TRICARE not, or, or, or TRICARE. Yeah. You know, I mean, again, they're wonderful people there, but mm-hmm. that's not what I would hold up as the, this is what everybody in America wants. Um, as a delivery system. Well, and I think too, there's at least with certain as sections of the American public, there's still a negative perception of the veterans affairs based off of the corruption in the last 10 years that have been in that organization. Well, and, and that's partly the point is it's a, it's a delivery system that's, you know, that's not um, run in sort of a free market sense. Right. And so that's how those things happen. You know, that's how the corruption was there. That's how those wait times are there. And, you know, um, not enough resources in certain areas. I mean, that's what happens when you get government control of things, my opinion. And this is sort of where Fulcrum comes into the mix when it comes to us helping doctors and advocating on their behalf. And that, and the question I guess I should ask then is, you know, how much does private insurance have to subsidize Medicare? And in that sense, is that causing part of the problem? Oh, yeah. It's, you know, it's the whole push the balloon thing. On average, and this was a a study out of CMS, I think. It was actually a pretty good study. On average, um, private insurance pays the average physician about 30% more than what Medicare pays them for the same thing. Okay. Mm -hmm. And for hospitals, it's about 80% more. So, you know, two things to learn from that. Yes, as, as the government is pushed down on reimbursement to physicians and things through Medicare, What's happened is they've just shifted those off onto the employer groups and to the patients. So we overpay at the at the private industry side so that Medicare can underpay. Well, that's easy to fix, but that would mean a raising of taxes. So it's mm-hmm. a, you know, it's that hidden tax. Right. As an employer owner and that pays for insurance for my employees, I know that I overpay so that my taxes are lower, which whichever one you want it, whichever pocket you want it to come out of. Um, but that definitely is happening. There's subsidy happening all the time there. Do you think it's possible for the government to run a, a well, let's say a well-oiled machine, you know, a well-oiled insurance company? And the reason I ask is I know there are some people, one, who advocate, for example, they advocate on getting a will. And they might you might ask, well, why would you do that? Because, you know, the government that can't take care of your roads, what makes you think they're going to take care of your belongings after you mm-hmm. die? So do you think that it's possible for the government, either at a state level or at the federal level, to be able to create a well-oiled and well-running you know, public option similar to what they wanted in the Affordable Care Act or, um, or Medicare for all or, or anything yeah. like that? So there are definitely circumstances and as an economist where having a government either run or highly regulated monopolistic entity makes sense. And they're, they're easy to figure out. So um, like power companies, okay, well, it wouldn't make sense to have 15 different companies stringing power lines all over the place because they were competing for the power bill. That's why right. we allow that monopoly, but then we heavily regulate the rating of it. You know, you can look at other things. That's why there's only one military, why the police force, why, you know, there are these mm-hmm. services that it just doesn't make sense to have multiple competition. That being said, outside of those, I'm a big proponent of, no, it doesn't make sense to have monopolistic delivery, government controlled, because the areas where we have had sort of that 
have shown that they're not very cost-effective or high quality. Two examples, um, Amtrak gets a lot of subsidies from the federal government. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense because you only want one set of rails, you know, because of the, but if you compare Amtrak to what it costs you to fly somewhere, which flying should be much more expensive because it's much quicker, much more flexible. I mean, I'll price out a ticket from Raleigh to New York City and compare Amtrak to flying. I can get there cheaper flying. Mm -hmm. Well, that's because free market economies create efficiency. Um, If you look at the postal service, you know, somewhere around $5 billion of of federal subsidy a year, but I can mail something FedEx cheaper and faster. Um, So in general, the answer is no. Healthcare is not one of those things like the rail system or like the power delivery where a single monopolistic entity is going to create efficiencies in and of itself and will be better. I don't think so. And I think that the examples we have of that would support that it wouldn't. Well, I'm glad you brought up the post service because I was going to bring up their, their recent uh, decision to lengthen delivery times. And once they lengthen their delivery times, all of a sudden everything was being delivered on time because now it wasn't considered late anymore. So you just mm-hmm. move the goalpost further to say, oh, well, now we're meeting our goal and everything's working better. And I, you know, I fear the same thing could happen with Veterans Affairs or with Medicare if they attempted to do something like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, wouldn't it be great to be able to do that? I mean, this April 15th, I don't think I could just say to the government, I'm not going to send you my taxes because I just delayed my, I decided that the deadline gets pushed back a month. See, I'm not late. I just moved it to May. You know, that ain't going to work. So in that sense, then, if we want to kind of give a a primer on something we might talk about in a later program. Is it possible to fix the problem? Is it possible to save um, our economy from the healthcare that's killing it? Oh, absolutely. The question isn't, the question is how we're going to fix it. At some point it'll fix itself. Um, You know, I tell people, you know, it's not very comforting, but these are truisms, you know, all planes land eventually. Mm -hmm all bleeding stops eventually, and all economic trends like what we're on now with this hyperinflation, they eventually fix themselves. Now, the problem is if you let it fix itself, it breaks. And then when, it, when all the pieces fall, it eventually we eventually sort of reach ground zero. The real thing is, how do we fix it before that happens? How do you land the plane successfully? How do you stop the bleeding before the patient dies? And that's, yeah, let's, we, we can get into that in future episodes because there's a lot of pieces to that that have to happen, but they're doable, you know, and it's, but it's systemic. It's like, it gets around, you know, increasing the health of the U S population. It gets around changing some of the economic factors in healthcare, like the consumer, not being the purchaser, um, like the supplier controlling demand, that kind of stuff um, that can fundamentally change it. And then we can have a nice balance of, you know, affordable with great access and great coverage. And I'm glad you mentioned those last three things, because that's something that I wanted to, to also just touch on as we prepare for future episodes. And, and that's that there, there seem to be three things that are desirable in healthcare. And you pointed this out in some of your articles, you know, affordability, access and quality, but it's not possible to have all three. So in what sense, what would affordable healthcare look like? What would you know good access look like and what would good quality look like? Well, and, and, and you, you've hit one of the important things there. You talk about good. Okay. Mm-hmm. What's not possible is to have the best of all. Right. And we don't have it anything else. We would like to have people talk about affordable housing. Okay. We would like to have affordable housing for everybody in the country. Now we know that that doesn't mean that everybody in the country is going to have a, you know, single family home on one acre of land with a nice yard. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's just not possible. And we know that for some people, affordable housing is going to be apartments, is going to be different things. Um, that's the way we've got to approach healthcare. What is good would be having um, fundamental healthcare available for everybody and having, you know, good quality healthcare available to everybody, not the extreme, not everything. And maybe not at your beck and call all the time. You know, it's finding that balance of how much access are we going to be willing to give up? How much quality are we going to be willing to give up? in the name of making sure it's available for all or for almost all. Um, That's where that's going to be an interesting balancing act. 
we're going to have to struggle with some things like maybe there's this new drug that's only marginally better, but incredibly expensive that we just aren't going to say that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Maybe end of life issues we're going to have to deal with differently. Maybe beginning of life issues for the for the extremely premature we're going to have to deal differently. You know, there are some some sacrifices we're going to have to make in order to not break the system like we do in everything else, housing and jobs and income, et cetera. And I think the last thing that I want to ask you about before we end is what we might be seeing as we enter the 2022 midterms and as we get ready to gear up for the 2024 presidential election. And one of the things I wrote about after President Biden's State of the Union address was the Republican response. And it was the Iowa governor who gave the response. And the thing I pointed out was that other than complaining about um, COVID policies, there was no mention of health care at all when Biden spent a good portion of his speech touting, you know, some of the proposals for Build Back Better uh, as as part of his success and part of his desires for his for his plans. And I mentioned that if we, if Republicans are going to want to have something important or something important to say, if they're going to be relevant in this upcoming election style, they need to say something about health care. Um, do you agree with that? And what do you think they should say about health care that would be an adequate response to, hey, expand the Affordable Care Act? Um, I would like to see both parties come to the table on, on what I think is an incredibly important issue on health care with real, honest discussion and, and proposals. Um, so I hope the Republicans have something. Um, now, I, I say that hope in that what will drive what does drive most elections now is whatever the pollsters say is that quick soundbite thing that will get you votes. Mm-hmm. And so it could be that the midterms are more about price of gas than healthcare. Right. Um, even though the price of gas is likely to stabilize much better and easier than our healthcare cost. Um, but if they do say something, to me, the Republican response should be pointing out why Medicare for all will end up being worse than where we are today and how there is a, you know, a solution that's possible just by sort of reframing the rules around healthcare and how we do it, but that's still a free market solution because that's what made this country the the economic powerhouse that it is, that we can have coverage for all Americans without throwing out, you know, the current structure that we have. We just need to change the rules to it a little bit. I hope that's their their message. But again, if it's all about gas prices, it'll be because some pollster said that's the best way to garner votes. Well, and you know, what's interesting, too, and I wonder how much of, of the Republican response was based off of pollster and, and, and focus group meetings, because something I pointed out when I wrote that article was that uh, the one of the top three issues, top three or four issues for every voting group is healthcare costs. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it doesn't rank in any of those is COVID-19 policies. But most of her healthcare talks was build back better is bad medicare for all is bad and we didn't like the way you shut down schools which well when the midterms come around no one's really going to be talking about it anymore because i can't think of any school district in the country where they're still mandating people stay home right no i I agree i i I hope it comes back around to the to tell here's an issue and this isn't a this isn't a comment about um the Republican Party, because it, it it really depends on who, you know, who's in power and what the out of power party is. But unfortunately, a lot of what politics, in my opinion, is turned into is not what I'm for, but showing how bad the other guy is. Right. Um, and it, it's happened on both sides. So, again, this is not a partisan thing. But, yeah. So when you when I hear the Republican response of this is bad, this is bad, they did this horribly. Well, that's sort of page one of the playbook. Can we move on and. Right. And you know, now move to here's what we're going to do better. And and that unfortunately gets a lost in the instant gratification soundbite media that we have today. Well, even in the clip that I that we played at the beginning of the program, and this, this isn't a comment about, you know, whether or not you'd like Trump or dislike Trump. That was his argument throughout Biden saying that he wants to expand the Affordable Care Act. He just started saying, well, that's socialist, that's socialist, that's socialist. Mm-hmm. Well, and that might work with a certain group of people, but there are a lot of people that might say, yeah, I agree. I don't like that idea, but you have not. And as far as I'm aware, the Trump administration never put forward any proposals to change the Affordable Care Act other than repeal and replace, which, like I said, was shot down by John McCain. Yeah. And that's again, it's it's really sad because what we've done is tried to have a race of who can 
make the other guy look worse rather than who can be better than the other guy, um, which is unfortunate. And we need to fix it because, like I said, it'll fix it on its own eventually, and we're not going to like it. I have one last quick thing I wanted to bring up with you, and I mentioned it briefly earlier in the program, and that's that um, credit agencies, credit rating agencies are not going to be looking at medical debt uh, when determining credit scores anymore. How much do you think this will help average consumer Americans? Um, well, when you, when, you, when you talk about average, um, the statistician in me sort of takes the <laughs> literal version of that, which is um, the average American, not a lot, but for a subset of American, greatly, you know, because you know, there are definitely people out there, not one or two, who, right. because of medical debt, are just then closed out of the, you know, the the lending market for things like cars, homes, etc. Um, and so, if you're in that boat, this is game changer. Now, for like I said, the median American family, it's it's not going to be, it's not going to get them a house, or not get them a house, or get them a car, or not get them because it's right. not that big. Right. But again, if you're down in that, you know, whether it's ten or twenty percent of the population, whatever it is, this is huge. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's going to about do it for us on time this week. And hopefully we'll talk a little bit more solutions in the next couple uh, programs, as well as talking about affordability, access and quality. Ron, uh, thanks for joining us. You're very welcome. I enjoyed it. Thank you. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of Flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts, be sure to sign up for our emails at flatlining.net. For Ron Howergan, I'm Matthew Hampley. Have a good week. All right. I'll jump first. Nope. Then you jump first. No, I said. What's the matter with you? I can't swim! <laughs> Why are you crazy? The fall will probably kill you. <laughs>